0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Changing Faith Podcast. Today we have with us an author, a blogger, a pastor, a podcaster, a husband and father most importantly, Mm. uh, my friend Colby Martin from San Diego. Colby, welcome to the podcast. What up, Michael? Real quick. Okay. So you threw blogger in there. (laughs) I don't know that I've written a blog in about nine months. I
1: wonder at what point does one cease becoming a blogger? That's a gr- great... That's, I I, but I don't know if I'm prepared to gonna say be another. That's going to be
0: another podcast. Like, See, I haven't blogged since 2016, I think. Okay. So I feel like I can no longer... <laughs> I haven't blogged since 2016. That's all I know. Uh, so I do not identify as a blogger anymore. Yeah. Former blogger.
1: Yeah. It's not that... I, so I'm an aspirational blogger.
0: I like the idea of being a blogger. But it just takes a lot of work. So I don't know that... Uh, so the anyway. first question that's on everybody's mind before we get to anything else is how often are you told that you look like Bradley Cooper? Oh, man. Yeah, I sure, that is on all your listeners'
1: mind, right? <laughs> I'm sure. They're all like, wait, ask. Okay. Um, multiple times a week, Okay, I imagine, okay. Uh, if, I were to, if I were to average it out. I, it does come up a lot. And as far as doppelgangers go, that's a pretty good one. That's a pretty good so one, which I, is weird. I've never been told I
0: look like Bradley Cooper. I accept it. <laughs> I accept it.
1: There was one party in particular that I went to that the uh, this one gal I think was pretty well inebriated by the time I arrived. <laughs> it was a friend of mine's like friend's birthday party. So I was pretty, a few steps removed. I knew nobody at the party and she swore I was him. I made the mistake right away of saying I wasn't. I think I probably could have gotten away with, with being just... Bradley Cooper for the night. <laughs> oh. If I would have just gone with it, just rode with it, you know? So anyway, nice. yeah, I get it a lot, but uh, it's good. Well, I other than that,
0: every- tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your your family, your, your work as a pastor.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so as you mentioned, I live in San Diego. We've been there for six years. Um, I do believe it is America's finest city. I accept that uh, name, that moniker wholeheartedly. It's fantastic. Uh, if you've never been there, uh, don't visit there because you'll want to move there. Um, yeah, we've been there for six years. Before that, we were in Phoenix for five years. Don't move there. That's nice. That's, that's as, it's as bad as it sounds. Uh, but then before that, we grew up in Oregon. My wife and I both okay. grew up in Oregon. Uh, so my wife's name is Kate, and we have been married almost 15 years. We have four boys, um, and we started a church together about four years ago. And, nice. Uh, yeah, I love, um, I love good coffee. I love uh, writing, uh, and I love failing at surfing. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I, I enjoy all those. I, things. I want to be a. I want to be someone who can surf. The learning process has been really frustrating.
0: Yeah, it's a steep uphill
1: curve. I, it really is for me. I don't know if it's the height and the lack of balance, um, but I just I love being in the ocean, man. I nice. love. There's just something about it, which is weird because growing up in Oregon, we would go. Well, in Oregon, you call it the coast, yeah, not the beach. <laughs> <laughs> so we would go to the coast, but it's just so cold and wet, uh, and the water was freezing, and I hated sand. So when you moved to San Diego, I didn't expect myself to become like a beach guy, but about a year into it, I'm like, "Oh, wait a minute. I really like this. Yeah, I really like it. Yeah. So I am
0: yeah, big fan of San Diego and the beach and Nice. Yeah. And you said you like writing, and you have you've written a book, Yeah, so you are still an author, although you may not be a blogger. That's true. Um, the
1: statute of limitations on being a, an author, I think, is longer. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. if you stop blogging for a year, and not a blogger. But you can be. You're always an author. Years in between books. That's right. Yeah, book, yeah. And
0: you, your book is titled Unclobber. Yep. Uh, and it's about the the six verses yep. in the Bible that have often been referred to as clobber passages that yep. have been used by, by Christians by religious people to clobber, That's right. uh, our friends in the LGBTQ community. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about the book and then you, you had written, um, four reasons why you talk about faith and sexuality. And those are the questions we're going to get into today and just talk about today. Um, but tell us a little bit about the book and what even motivated you to write that sure. to launch this, um, inclusive faith community that you and Kate started. Sure. So that story. Yeah.
1: Okay. So the book is called Unclobber. I do think I made a mistake though, because I'm not kidding you, Michael, more than half of the people that uh, either write to me or talk about it on social media call it Unclobbered, like Ed in the past <laughs> tense. Um, that it just—it's taken on a life of its own. Like that's just what people think the book is called. So I think I might have misnamed it. Um, I like to think people think that though, because after reading it, they feel as though they... like like it's a, a past tense experience, yeah, yeah. maybe. I don't, know, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's just hilarious. An email comes by and it's, thank you for writing Unclobbered. I'm like, oh, I didn't, but you're welcome. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the subtitle is Rethinking Our Misuse on, uh, on the Bible and Homosexuality. And as you mentioned, for me, I, I found myself really passionate about looking at these six uh, verses, text passages in the Bible that historically have been used to justify discrimination against people who identify LGBT or Q. And I found myself saying, you know what? I don't think growing up, our, our four boys, we'd have this book that I, one of my favorite books to read to them at bedtime was the book, we're going on a bear hunt. Do you know this book? Did you no. ever read? That? Okay. Uh-uh. So it's one of those little cardboard books. We're going on a bear hunt. And it's this family that as the title says, goes on a bear hunt. And throughout the story, like they run into various obstacles. Uh, and so the book says, we're going on a bear hunt. Uh, we're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We are not scared. And then they run into obstacles like a forest. Oh no, um, a deep, dark forest. And then the refrain of the book is, we can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh no, we have to go through it. Mm. And so they would you know, run into the forest and snow and weeds and they have all these obstacles. And the refrain is, we can't go over it, we can't go under it, oh no, we have to go through it. Why do I say that? Because I come to these six clobber passages and I know that some people's tendency, especially when they've left conservative Christianity or been kicked out of, um, and they found that they find themselves in a more progressive expression of Christianity or maybe no religious perspective at all. I think oftentimes the, the initial impulse is, let's just ignore these, let's just discard them. They mean nothing. They're old. They're irrelevant. They're you know written thousands of years ago. They mean nothing today, um, or or they will say, well, I don't know what this means, but I'm just going to sort of put it on a shelf and ignore it and keep on going through. So, but I think we don't have to go over them. We don't have to go around these texts. We can actually go right on through the heart of them mm-hmm. and discover on the other side a, a faith and and um, some beliefs that are that are actually more. Inclusive and holistic and healing and hospitable. I think we can go right on through these things. And so that's what I tried to do in the book is say, you know, if we put these in their original historical context, if we try to understand what the author, who they were writing to, why they were writing it, what was going on, uh, can we still extract things out of here that have meaning and depth and beauty and truth and love uh, in in a way that doesn't mean we have to throw the whole thing out? Right. Um, And what what do we get when we do that? Right. Uh, And so for me, it totally eliminates all of the justification that people have used to uh, discriminate.
0: And this is important because when you get into the historical roots of the text and you get into some of the deeper uh, reflections on the text, people seem to be willing to do that. Like with the Gospels, for example, Mm. unpacking first century um, Judaism in Palestine or Israel when they were under Roman occupation or second temple period Judaism, to understand the words of Jesus, to understand the culture of the disciples, to understand the rabbi disciple relationship. And then new things come to light, Uh but there seems to be a resistance with certain subjects that the Bible addresses or doesn't address to do that and say, Hey, we're learning something about both the context and our context that can bring new light. What do you, what do you perceive that? Like, why do you, think that exists?
1: Yeah, so this is something that I think that we we run up against all the time, which is an assumption that the these six texts are so clear in their plain reading that to do anything other than just accept them in their English translation at face value, is to try and do funny business with the text. Hmm. So people, uh, you know, they'll do a Google search on what does the Bible say on homosexuality and, uh, you know, BibleStudyTools.com will pull up 1 Corinthians 6:9, and it'll say right there, you know, those who, uh, uh, men who have sex with other men shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And they post it to their Facebook and they say, see, it's clear the Bible's against homosexuality to sin. End of subject. And there's this resistance to, as you said, uh, to want to ask any follow-up questions that might get behind translation issues, that might uh, get behind the context of the letter or the context of the, uh, or what the letter was written to or any of those things. There's this, whoa, 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 no, if you don't just accept what it says in the, this English translation, then you're trying to justify something or you're mm-hmm. trying to get out of something. Right. But your point is well made in that that same person that would put up those immediate walls and be like, no, 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 you're just trying to get out of it they're willing to do that work in other places they're willing to say oh yeah we should probably we should probably understand why paul says that you know a, a woman should not wear gold we should probably do some work to understand that right we should probably do some work to understand why paul says that if men have long hair it's a, you know it's a, uh, that, that that that's bad we probably yeah. shouldn't just take those at english face value we should probably understand. so so what i try to do i guess when i run up against that mm-hmm. is i try to invite people to consider other texts or other beliefs that they hold that they have allowed themselves to push past the plain meaning of the English text, right? Uh, and say, well, let's just see if we do that with these clobber passages.
0: Let's just be open to see what might be on the other side. Hmm. And what led you to this place? Because I, I mean, I, we've talked about you didn't grow up thinking this way, but yeah. it's something that evolved in you over the course of time. What were some yeah. of the things that that Okay, so, out in your life.
1: so I grew up in a real conservative um, household. Mm-hmm. Um, part of my family's Baptist, so a long line of Baptists, some are recovering Baptists in many ways. And so for me growing up, there was just an assumption that homosexuality was wrong. Uh, it's not that we talked about it much, it didn't ever come up, but if it ever did, it was, yeah, that's a that's a sin in the eyes of the Lord, so so don't be gay. Um, when I Went, uh, and then I went to college and got my degree in pastoral ministry at a Baptist college. Uh, I was really just doubling down on a whole bunch of this conservative theology. When I left college, I began to read some other authors, primarily Brian McLaren, who sort of opened up this, yes. this capacity to ask questions about the faith and to consider that maybe uh, there are other answers than my sort of narrow Baptist answers mm-hmm. have been. And I remember... When I was in my first pastoral job out of college, I was going through the process of getting uh, licensed in the denomination. And I was was studying for my licensing interview that was coming up. And I was surveying like the policies and procedures manual, real exciting stuff. (laughs) And I get to one section of the document and it has this line on there that said, um, practicing homosexuals shall not be permitted uh, membership in the church. And my first question was, what is a practicing homosexual? Yeah. <laughs> what does it take to become that? Like, yeah. uh, what all does that mean? But anyway, um, but I remember that, like reading that and, and just like stopping dead in my tracks and having this, uh, this moment of realizing that even though my head was firmly rooted in this conservative theology, yeah. like I knew the answers, it turns out my heart um, wasn't comfortable with some of the ramifications of what that theology meant, hmm. and suddenly I realized this real disconnect between my head and my heart. Um, that, that at that time I would have said, "Okay, yeah, even if it's a sin, like really they can't be a member of the church." And then I went on to read that they can't serve in different capacities, uh, different you know different volunteer positions, and I just remember being really bothered. Uh, at a heart level, hmm. at how this theology sort of impacted people. Um, fast forward a few years, and I've sort of followed my theological uh, inquiry more and more to the left, yeah. and, and different theological convictions that I used to hold I no longer held. And um, you know, a lot of people, when you ask them what led them to their journey of becoming open and affirming, yeah, a lot of people will tell you. Um, it's because I had a brother who came out or an aunt who was a lesbian or, uh, someone in my family or close friend came out and I had to kind of wrestle reconcile with that. Right. Um, that wasn't my story. Like I didn't have my first gay friend until after I had shifted my theology and then ended up getting fired <laughs> because of my theology on that. Um, and I, 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 share that for two reasons. One, because I, I often run into this mentality that people have where if somebody says, oh yeah, I'm now open and affirming because my family member came out of the closet and direct to mm-hmm. oftentimes, and I'm sure you've heard this, that journey to that position gets dismissed as, as though it's, oh, you only became open and affirming because you had a loved one that came out. Right. As though that... And I get... My heart breaks whenever I hear that because I think... Well, yeah. How else would you want them to respond? Like that is the empathetic journey of love is when the people that you love have different life, you listen to them and you learn from them and you try and understand. So what other journey would you want them to have? Right. So I would hope people would be open. So anyway, um, it, just, it just turns out that wasn't my journey. My journey was more one of pursuing um, theological integrity with where I was, uh, where the spirit was taking me. Yeah. And so for me, it was an exercise in... Um, my old theological training says that, uh, homosexuality is a sin, but I, but all these other blocks in my Jenga of conservative Christianity have been taken out. I think I need to like reevaluate this one, Mm -hmm. the one that, that sort of justifies discrimination against LGBTQ. And when I actually looked at the text for really the first time, you know, beyond just the casual reading of it, uh, that was when this whole world opened up and I, and I, at the end of that study realize, oh, I can no longer... There's no biblical justification for discrimination. Yeah. So
0: I guess I'm open and affirming. I should probably, yeah. I should probably change my... Change and my and one of the things that's important, just two observations I'll make, I'll say it that way, is one of the things that uh, I know you've been accused of, I've been accused of is, well, you just stopped taking the Bible seriously. Um, your book is pretty much, I think, if anyone gives your book a fair reading, it's all the evidence they need to know, like, ah... Colby might be taking the Bible more seriously uh, than ever, which is incredibly important. Um, And I think the second thing, as you're talking about this journey and this movement toward, um, you said something about, I looked at the text for the first time, and it was fascinating in my own journey um, toward uh, being open and affirming and in our church's movement toward full inclusion, how many people said, I disagree with you, and wanted me to tell them uh, how their position was biblically supported. And it occurred to me, not just with regard to this conversation uh, around the LGBTQ community, but there's so many things that we say we believe. And when you say to someone, just the simple question, why? Or help me understand it. It's kind of like crickets. You don't don't have anything. And so I think it's important that, you know, on this podcast, we talk about, uh, our listeners' next step, you might be listening right now and, and you might be affirming, you might be um, non-affirming. If you don't know why from from a faith perspective, um, I really want to encourage you a, pick up Unclobber. It's not Unclobbered. <laughs> I just
1: want to point that out. <laughs> Although if you Google um,
0: search that, I'm pretty sure you would still find it. <laughs> so Yeah, you would. Um, but th- so not, not just promotion for your book yeah. because it is a helpful book. Sure. Um, and, and and begin reading, I would say, the from the perspective that you disagree with as well. Don't just boost your own position. Um, give a fair reading, I think, across the board yeah. because in doing that, you're going to end up learning more, which is super important.
1: Yeah. No, that's an excellent point. I, uh, I've heard from a lot of people that my book has been the book that they're able to give their non-affirming family Mm -hmm. to give their dad, uh, to give to their sibling, um, because I identify as a, as a straight, uh, male. Mm -hmm. So meaning I don't have a, I don't have a dog in the fight. I'm not writing from a particular bias right out the gate. Right. There's a lot of great books out there written by our LGBTQ uh, brothers and sisters that many people will not even give the time of day because it's written by a gay man or lesbian. Right, And so uh, that's I've, I've found my book has been a helpful <clears throat> inlet uh, for some people. And yeah, to, to, to what you just said, if you're listening to this and you can at all resonate with that disconnect of your head and your heart where y- your mind tells you like you believe a particular con- uh, conviction about the sinfulness of homosexuality or uh, the, the, the non divine affirmation of same sex marriage, but your heart is in this, but, but is that really? Yeah. Like how I want to treat my neighbor, my, my siblings. Um, this book is designed to try and uh, find alignment between the head hmm. and the heart and, yeah. sho- and show you that you can take the Bible more seriously. Go right on through these texts with full
0: conviction and honesty and integrity and, and find a way to align those two. And the book's really accessible. It's not a bunch of theory. It's not deep theological terms. There's a ton of stories. Um, and, and so that's important too for people who yeah. say, oh, I'm not a I'm not a theologian. Yeah. Good. Colby is and has done the hard work yeah. of making it accessible. Yeah. So you, you in talking about the book, you talked about four reasons why you started talking about faith and sexuality so mm. much. And so for the rest of the time, I want to just go through those four things because they're um, really, I think, uh, important observations for, for those who are listening to, to contemplate, not just with regard to faith and sexuality, but faith and blank, fill in the blank, whatever mm. that is, faith and money. Um, faith and politics, whatever it is. And so you you started out by saying, a number of years ago when I first started writing about topics of faith and sexuality, I would often get asked by people, why do you talk about this so much? Move on already. Mm -hmm. And so you took that question and you said, this is a great question, and here are four reasons why. So reason number one is is gay balloons Mm -hmm. and Star Wars Legos. (laughs) So let's... Let's start there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So
1: I, so real quick, just to summarize what happened. So when my so when my theological journey took me to become open and affirming, um, that resulted in my eventual termination from a job that I had uh, at a megachurch outside of outside of Phoenix um, when they discovered my theology on sexuality. And so when I when I got fired from that job painful as it was, it gave me the gift of no longer having to like hide in the theological closet. Yeah. Like I got to, I got to come out and I got to integrate my internal convictions with my external reality, which if you've ever lived where those two things are, are not in alignment. Oh yes. That's a painful, yes, that uh, the human spirit is not meant to live in that condition for very long. Um, and so even though the the firing was painful, I um, I was finally able to align my insides and my outsides, and so as a result, yeah, on my social media and back when I did blog <laughs> more regularly, I was a blogger. Uh, I did. I was writing about this stuff a lot. Like it it was. It was. It, you know, the, the well that had been sort of. So that's where the the, uh, the the gay balloon thing comes from. Is if you take a balloon and you you keep blowing air into it. Um, It's just going to keep expanding and eventually you're going to hit a point where something's going to happen. Uh, You could keep blowing to where the balloon explodes um, or you could uh, tie it off and just leave it and walk away or you could stop blowing into it and sort of begin to let the air out. And for me, the years of being out of alignment was just this uh, internal uh, inflation of like my soul balloon uh, and I knew that I was reaching a breaking point. And so I had all this stuff inside of me, these theological ideas and, and this desire to want to live in a, uh, as a straight ally that had, that had no outlet. And so when I got fired, yeah, it, the, finally the balloon was able to let some of that hmm. air out. So yeah, I did talk about it a lot, and I may have annoyed some people, but why did I do it? Because I've been building up for so many, yeah. for a long time, and it just needed to come out. Yeah. So I, I recognize that some people at that time were like, man, it's like all oh, you ever talk about. And I'm like, well... Yeah, that balloon has been, uh, <laughs> it has got a lot of air in it, and I can finally let it out now. Yeah, and talk about the Star Wars Legos. So yeah, Star Wars Legos. So I have uh, four boys and. We kind of only buy one toy in our house, and it's Legos. <laughs> like, we, we don't really have a whole lot of other things, but, man, we got a lot of Legos. And uh, and there was a particular season where it was all about the Star Wars Legos, and they were just passionate about it. I mean, they would go onto Amazon and, like, build wish lists on which uh, next Star Wars Lego set Just They had this passion for it. And I, I, I see their passion for Star Wars Legos, uh, and, you know... Y- sometimes as adults, we we tamp our passions down because it's vulnerable Mm -hmm. to to let them out to show somebody. Yeah. And so I remember back when I first was able to start talking, writing about this stuff. It turns out I was super passionate about freeing people from this really oppressive theology. Mm-hmm. Turns out I was super passionate about upending this centuries old justification for discrimination. Mm-hmm. So did I write about it a lot? Yeah, because it turns out, holy crap, like this thing is important and I'm like really energized by it. Yeah. Like my kids are with Star Wars Legos.
0: <laughs> yeah, and what was your sense? With with the balloon, this idea of like you can finally exhale, Mm -hmm. Um, I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm. In uh, January 2017, to finally sit on a platform in front of hundreds of people and say out loud, my journey Mm -hmm. and Denver Community Church welcomes the LGBTQ community at any and every level of leadership. Mm. Um, There was a sense in which that congruence publicly for the first time, because I had been silent for a number of reasons. Um, most of which related to my own cowardice for a lot of years. Sure. Um, and, and so there is that sense of, oh, my goodness, it finally came out. Yeah. Oh, that felt so good. I'm going to keep talking about this. Yeah. Why do you think people, what was your sense, and maybe I'm act- asking you to project a little bit, as to why people started to get bothered by that?
1: The people that were, I think, most bothered, so when I, back when I wrote this and I was reflecting on the amount of feedback I was getting because of my the volume uh, and the intensity at which I talked about this was so great, a lot of the feedback was from my previous tribe, Mm -hmm. which is conservative evangelical. Mm -hmm. And they saw me just from their vantage point, I just took this radical left turn, and now was someone they didn't recognize anymore. And I think for them that that caused some real... um, uh, what's the word, like when your, your your mind is dealing with conflicting ideas? Dissonance? Yes. So it created real distance for them because they're like, no wait, Colby has always been this person. And that, that usually fills out by, um, you know, the, the Bible answer guy or the, uh, the passionate about saving people from their sins and like this sort of evangelical uh, ideal. Like that's who we've known Colby to be. And now we see this other thing. And so every time... I would post something or talk about this particular topic. It was repoking that dissonance for them, mm-hmm. and they were dis- they were uncomfortable with what it made them. Uh, I think what it brought up for them, which is, um, if that guy can make that radical a shift, that kind of makes me scared about my own um, oh, the convictions that I hold. So I need you to really stop good. poking that dissonance uh,
0: because it makes me scared. There's there's a lot to unpack there of going for your passions and not allowing somebody else's, maybe we could say unhealth or discomfort, block that. Well, I'm glad you stuck with it. Yeah, thank you. Because (laughs) it led to you writing a book. Yes. The the second thing is, um, and this is I think my favorite one of all the four, is you talked about an email from an old friend who said to you, quote, if you are in fact a believer in Jesus Christ, why then are you focused on issues of faith and sexuality why not focus on Christ and him crucified? End mm, quote. Yeah. And so reason number two is you say, well, speaking of Jesus. Yeah. So
1: help us understand that Th- a bit. That was so painful for me when I would get that sort of feedback of, why are you talking about this issue? You should just be talking about Jesus and Christ crucified. And, and essentially what they mean is you should be trying to get people to say the sinner's prayer and save their soul. Like that should be the thing. Right. And anything else, uh, you know. And I remember responding to one of these particular individuals I probably had more snark than I needed, (laughs) Uh, you know, because that was just the season of life I was in. But I remember being like, come on, bro. Like, think about your own sermon series. I I guarantee you that you talk about random other topics as well. So it's not not every single sermon. Well, actually, maybe with one guy, maybe all of his sermons did end with Christ crucified. Um, But part of it was just their own, again, their own discomfort with me talking about it. But my bigger thing that I want to say about that is it's It's not me setting Jesus aside so that I can talk about the way that the church has historically justified discrimination against uh, LGBTQ individuals. I'm not setting Jesus aside to do this. It is exactly because of my commitment to follow Jesus Hmm. that, um, that has opened this path up for me and energizes me to continue walking in it. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm yeah. not ignoring Jesus. It's, uh, Jesus is actually the reason why I'm on this freaking journey to begin with, yeah. and why I keep going. It is my commitment to the way of Jesus, to, uh, to the person that I see as Jesus, which is this uh, this guy who was constantly expanding the guest list of who got to be at the great party of God and sit at the uh, sit at the table. Yeah. Um, the guy who went to the margins and the and the, uh, the the outsiders and the outcasts and says, No, 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 no. Even you, even you are part. Like um, I know society has told you otherwise, but they're wrong. Like, you are part of the family of God. Like, this is the Jesus that I see, though, um, driven by mercy and compassion. Uh, so it is my commitment to being a Christian, mm. which for me is about following Jesus, not about a particular set of theological commitments that I acquiesce to. It is because I'm a Christian that I talk about this stuff, right. because this is the stuff of Christ. This right. is the stuff of um, reaching those on the margins and bringing in
0: uh, those who historically are on the outside. Yeah. And it, that, that's such an important piece because we can, uh, it's very easy, I'll say it this way, to make Jesus, like as you're talking about, you know, Jesus being crucified as the way to get to heaven, mm-hmm. that if we're gonna talk about Jesus being crucified, we're gonna talk about what Jesus did for me, we're gonna talk about what I now, how I benefit. And what I hear you saying is no, 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 like that has its place. We're called to follow him. Mm-hmm. And if we are only about Christ crucified as a, basically a benefit, a religious benefit, we're going to miss, um, unless you deny me and pick up your cross and follow me, you're not my disciple. Yeah. And so there's almost a piece in which Jesus is saying, like, watch what I do because you have to undergo this. Watch what I do because you have to do this. Don't just talk about me.
1: Yeah. uh, Soren Kierkegaard talks about that Jesus didn't, Jesus doesn't want admirers or worshipers. He wants followers. Yeah. Admiring and worshiping Jesus keeps Jesus at a distance, uh, as someone that I can, you know, from I can worship and I can admire um, and I can pray to it to accept in my heart. But following is a whole different thing. Now you're yep. up close and you're like, oh, I actually have to know how you lived so that I can live like that. Right. It's a totally different thing. Yeah. And this is what I think Jesus did when he walked around was, uh, as I have loved you, now you go and love. Yes, like he just was never interested in people's the experience of their soul after death. It just wasn't wasn't on
0: his priority list. Nor so. nor did he ever command people to worship him. No, he didn't. Um, and when they did, he would be like, can you not? Yeah, <laughs> and what is it? it's Matthew where they show up at the Mount of Olives and some worshiped and some doubted, which is the funniest thing yeah, to me. Uh-huh. And you don't see Jesus being like, whoa, hang on a second. Before I ascend, you need to stop doubting. <laughs> how can, after um, all I've done,
1: how can you doubt? Yeah,
0: yeah, I think it's Richard Rohr talks about, it's so much easier to worship than follow. So, you know, so of course we do. Infinitely. Of course we go into the worship side.
1: Cuz you can keep that sucker at a distance and it doesn't it doesn't have any command on your life. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Oh, that's so good. Okay. We're at number 3 now. Let's do it. And yet it moves. And yet it moves. Man, that was a, like a, a movie trailer voice right there. <laughs> thank, and thank yet you. it moves. So then you begin talking about Galileo. So yeah. help us with this one.
1: Okay, so why... Again, this is all sort of responding to why, why is this a thing that I've sort of put so much of my time and energy and resources into. Um, I think your savvy listeners know that the church, like Capital C Church, the Christian Church, historically, we are not and have not been exempt uh, from getting it wrong. Like we have been wrong oh, yeah. on some significant things mm-hmm. throughout our short 2,000-year history. Yes. Uh, so for me to write a book, for others to write books, for, for people like you to stand up in the January of 2017 and say this is the conviction of our leaders and this is the direction of our church, for us to say, oh, no, 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 I think the church has been wrong on this, I think the church has uh, either misunderstood and or mistranslated and or misapplied the Bible and homosexuality. For us to, for us to say, now we've been going in the wrong direction, so we're going to make an about face, this is not the first time that we've had to do that. Mm-hmm. The church is not... Like, it, it should not be outright a thing um, to discredit open and affirming theologians by saying, well, for two thousand, you're just saying that we've gotten it wrong for two thousand years, and now you've gotten it right. Well, kind of. Like <laughs> I, 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 think that doesn't discredit it right out. So, so and yet it moves. Uh, this is, um, you know, the 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 myth or the legend. I don't know how accurate it is, but uh, you know, Galileo during uh, during the, during the uh, you know the the Middle Ages, he had the audacity to begin to challenge the widely held belief that the earth was the center of the universe and that everything revolved around the earth. Um, and that was a, a, a you know, the, the church at the time absolutely bought into that model. Uh, and they had biblical justification for it. Like mm-hmm. there were, there were verses that supported and justified this idea that the earth is the center of the universe. And Galileo had the audacity, uh, through his scientific exploration, uh, to say, actually, I think the sun is the center, and I think the Earth. I think we move around the sun. Yeah, and so he was not only challenging scientific convention, but he was challenging the church and saying that no, no, no. I, th- I, I think we've gotten it wrong. And you know, I, I, as many people know, the church, you know, eventually imprisoned Galileo, and, and you know, and he was forced to kind of recant. You know, but the myth is that even in his recanting, uh, you know, he kind of like under his breath would mutter the words like, and yet it moves. Like, even though you're forcing me to acquiesce to the official position of the church. Under the threat of death. Under the threat of death. I'm like... I still believe that the earth moves. Yep. Like the earth is, we're the thing that's moving here. And and so the church has gotten it wrong. And I use that word, I don't even know if I like that word, but it's the most helpful I have at the moment. The church has gotten it wrong in terms of heliocentrism. Uh, the church has gotten it wrong in terms of uh, slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at the freaking American uh, history and how the church had biblical justification to support the owning mm-hmm. of black bodies. Yes, um and we can look back now and say that was wrong. That was a that was a misapplication, a misunderstanding, a horrible handling of these biblical texts. Um we were wrong. The church was wrong. Um the most people uh now within the Christian tradition look at the way that uh we have treated women in the church mm-hmm. and we've said, No, um uh, the ways that we used to biblically justify the um the lessering of women, we were wrong on yeah. that. So for me, why do I talk about this stuff so much? Because I think the church is not exempt from getting it wrong. And when we see that we have, it's time to turn that ship. Yeah, you know, like I don't want to be, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Yeah, um, I don't want to be on the side. I think of the the pain that people might probably still have in the like the deep south, um, people you know that are well on in years that can remember uh, being in churches and growing up in churches that would justify segregation on biblical texts. Yes, I can imagine those people then throughout their lifetime as society shifted and civil rights shifted, and um, now they're in a place where they look back in abject horror that they ever thought that this is what the Bible was actually saying, right? and how painful that must be. Um, and so, yeah, so that's why I'm like, no, I, we've gotten it wrong before. Yeah. We've gotten it wrong on this. Um, let's turn the ship around.
0: Yeah, and it's important, too, to, to own the way the church has got it wrong. Um, I mean, you can begin pointing toward all sorts of things where... Uh, Christianity was the was, was a motivating central motivating factor for apartheid in South Africa. Hmm. Um, you have the uh, um, the Crusades and the battle cry of the Crusades was Deus Volt um, God Wills God Wills this slaughter. Wow! Um, so you go on and on and on. And I one of the things that I've seen in my own life is that wherever I am in the, in in the moment, wherever my convictions are, whatever I'm understanding. There's almost a out of my own insecurity, out of my own hubris, like, I, OK, I'm good now um, because growth sucks. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There, the, and I see this played out there when you get a bunch of people together who've all grown up learning and hearing and believing the same things. There's kind of a we're good now. Yeah. And what then also creeps in is the deceptive belief of and I, I, we've always mm-hmm. done it like this. Mm-hmm. Not just us, but the generations before us. So even when I'm recalling memories now of when I was a pastor 15 years ago, I assume 15 years ago, I had the same insights, thoughts, maturity, life experience that I have now. And I'm like, no, I was a, I was a jack wagon, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, and so what you are pointing out is what what you're not saying, I'll say it that way, is we have arrived, get with it. It's This is another step that we're taking together yep. of recognizing ways that we've been unjust, unloving, ways in which we've um, uh, hurt and wounded people. And in the tradition of the church, That's right. we have come to a place of repentance, which means changing our mind, yep. turning around, going yep. the other way, and renewal. Yep. And for years from now, decades from now, centuries from now, whatever it is, the church is gonna look back at us and be like, what were they thinking with sure. X, Y, or Z? Yeah. And I think holding that is actually a really humble thing. And that's important because when people hear things like the right side of history or, you know, this is more helpful or we're expanding, it's like, oh, you think you've arrived? Nope, 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 we've not arrived. And if we say that, it is arrogant. But if we can say we're we're just looking at the history of the church mm-hmm. and recognizing we're all imperfect, therefore all of our interpretations and executions have been imperfect, mm-hmm. Um but we're, we're going to take this leap. Yeah. Um, that's super important. Yeah. Th-
1: and that's the gift of the uh, the prophetic voice from the Old Testament. Yeah. The, you know, to be a prophet wasn't to, you know, predict the future or to do some critique of the outside world. It was to look at the inside, the institution of of whatever that religious uh, tribe was and say, this is where we've gotten off course. Yeah. And that's a tradition that I think Jesus, uh, you know, walked into. And that's a tra- I'm not calling myself a prophet, but I'm saying that... That pattern is one of the great gifts of um, the, the religion of, of uh, the Hebrews before us and, and, and now those who identify as Christian, that tradition of the self-critique yes. of saying, no, we haven't yet arrived. Right. We haven't yet arrived. So let's always be open to the possibility that we've been wrong and to not be afraid to admit when we have, because it's not about getting it right. It's not about getting it right. Yeah. I, I get so amped up uh, when I think about that because if, if it was about getting it right and having the right belief, We're then Jesus was a miserable teacher. He was yeah. horrible because the dude taught in like confusing parables. Um, he didn't leave us anything in writing. He did everything against what you would conventionally do if the point was to get it right. So the point can't be getting it right. So we have to have, like you were saying, a a humility and a holding things loosely enough to say we can constantly be evaluating and self-critiquing and not be afraid to say when we've gotten something wrong, because it's not the end of the world if we've gotten it wrong.
0: When you're you're talking about Jesus and getting it right, Uh, think about it. So you talked about your four boys. I have three kids. In my best moments as a parent, when I see one of my kids doing everything they can to make a good choice to get a good grade, to play a good game, whatever it is, and they are giving a 1,000%, and they fail miserably, Mm -hmm. the the pride and the joy and the love I have for them is in the effort, is in the faithfulness, is in the trying. And one of my favorite things that Jesus says in all of his teachings is when he says, you know, which one of you, if your kid asks you for a fish, is going to give him a snake? Or if they ask for bread, you're going to give him a stone? And he's like, if you who are evil Mm -hmm. can give good gifts. Mm -hmm. And so I think about from a parenting perspective, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like, wait, wait, God's going to see us doing everything we can to understand, to be faithful, to imitate Jesus. And we're going to fall. We're going to fail. We're going to screw it up. We're going to try to fix it. We're going to do a terrible job of fixing it. We're going to have wrong
1: beliefs and wrong ideas about things.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And at the end of all of this, whatever that looks like, he's going to be like, yeah, sorry. Um, you know, there was, there was one theological point oh, we're off on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I said a few weeks ago when I was preaching that if, if this whole thing's about getting it right, we're all screwed. Yeah. Um, because we're all wrong about— The system's rigged against us. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's a it's a really, really bad swindle by a not very kind deity, if that's, that's the deal. Yeah, my
1: hope is not that my children will grow up and one day mentally acquies- acquiesce to a propositional statement that I am indeed their biological father. I don't really care that they know that with certainty. Yeah, I care that they know that they are loved and that
0: they belong to our family. You know what I mean? That's and that that's will not come through their experience, their inner yeah. experience yeah. of being embraced by their mom and dad. Yeah,
1: I don't, it doesn't matter what they believe. It doesn't yeah. matter what we believe. Yeah. So, anyways, yeah. So hold it loosely and admit that we've gotten it wrong before. We can get, we've, and we'll get it wrong again. Oh yeah. We will get it wrong again, and that's okay. That's about the
0: only thing I do know for sure. <laughs> All right, number four. This is the fourth and final one. The Bible is tricky. Mm -hmm. Love shouldn't be. Yeah. Okay, so why do I write about this stuff so much?
1: So, I don't have any problems anymore just acknowledging and naming that the Bible is complicated. There was a time in my life where I, I would not have felt comfortable saying that. I would have approached the Bible with more clarity and more certainty. I would have either not been able to see or ignored the ways in which it contradicts itself um, or the ways in which it's wrong. Uh, but now I have no, like, I can just say, yeah, you know what the Bible, uh, this is a really old document written, you know, by people in times and places that we have zero connection to energetically and emotionally and philosophically. And so trying to understand it in our day. This is hard work. It takes a lot of work. Um, to really try to understand what's going on here, Uh, to get get any sort of semblance of what might actually be, um, you know, I don't even want to say true because that's a modern uh, approach to that. But anyway, so the Bible is really tricky. So yeah, we can come to particular topics or issues like sexuality, and we can look at these verses and say, oh man, there are a number of different ways to interpret this. There are number, There, number. I think some are better than others, but there are a number of different ways to interpret the Bible on all sorts of different mm-hmm. issues. Um, it is a complicated document, and it takes a lot of work. It's hard. Bible's tricky. But I don't know that the choice and the posture to love people should be that tricky. Hmm. I think that should be... Um, something that we choose to err on every single time. So we might have disagreements on how to handle the Bible, but we, but the basic fundamental value that all humans deserve dignity and honor and respect and love. That should n- that is not tricky. That is not like that is not uh, something that that is really, from in my opinion, up for debate. Yeah. And so um, I write a lot about this stuff because if nothing else, I want to. Rehumanize uh, LGBTQ individuals for yeah. those whom have in their minds uh, so dehumanized them because they've attached the word abomination uh, to being gay, uh, because they've attached the, the ideas of being uh, unnatural uh, to being gay. Like, these are dehumanizing words. These are yes. words that take people out of uh, being just another human that deserves love. And now you're sort of an object that can be dismissed. I want to I wanna, I need us to move... We all need us to move away from that yeah. and lean into... Uh, just choosing love regardless of what you might think about who a person is attracted to. So yeah, the Bible's tricky. I get it. Um, but love, love isn't. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yes, love, love is tricky. Yeah. As soon as I say that, I'm like, it's, oh, geez, I'm trying to figure out marriage for 14 years. Yeah. Love is tricky. But the basic posture of choosing love over, even when we might get confused by the Bible, I think that that should just yeah, right out the gate be.
0: be the, well, and it's love's pretty simple. It's extremely difficult. Mm, yeah, yeah, Yeah. And so there's, there's so much complexity within love. What's interesting is when it comes to studying the Bible, yeah, there's tons of complexity, but you can go to school for a few years, heck, you can read a book or two, or listen listen to a podcast, mm-hmm. um, and it actually can become something that's somewhat easy. And so I look at the way of Jesus, as you were just talking about earlier, and that is an incredibly difficult path. Mm-hmm. Um, And so we can construct theologies, construct ways of reading the Bible and everything else that get really, really complex, um, and in the end are kind of pretty easy. Um, And so what I hear you is saying, like, no, we need to take the harder path. We need to take the harder road. And and with that, what do you then say to people who say things to you like, oh, well, yeah, you're just too, you know, lovey-dovey. I'm sure you've heard this. Sure. Or one of the things I've heard is it's not loving to let people live in sin. Sure. What are some of the ways you respond to, to those comments? Oh man, yeah, it's not loving to let people live in sin. Well,
1: the first thing that comes up for me is generally, if that's what a person leads with, there then I can quickly assume they're not interested in a conversation. Hmm. so I don't I, I just don't engage in those anymore. I re, and and maybe maybe I need to pick that mantle back up and try again, but I've just had too many that there's just we're just spinning the wheel. like they don't really want to have a conversation. But if I sense that that person truly is, um, interested in having a dialogue, whether it's around the Bible and homosexuality or around how Christians should uh, treat their LGBTQ brothers and sisters, um, that's a, I love having that conversation. Yeah. But if they're just wanting to throw out platitudes like l- love the sin or hate the sin uh, and not really do the
0: hard work um, of, of having a harder conversation, I, I, I oftentimes just don't even engage them. Um, it's interesting to note that people who say most fervently and passionately, it's unloving to let people live in sin, are not interested in you pointing out theirs. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think you're probably right. They, they're just not right. interested.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, another thing
1: I'd probably say to them is, uh, I'd probably say, you know what? As a principle, I don't disagree with you. Um, I, I think there's a sense in what you're saying that I can actually, I can actually get down with. Um, but where I would push back is that I don't think that someone identifying as LGBTQ is a sin. And, and, uh, and so for me, because I don't have that, share that conviction, um, then I can't get down with what you're saying, but the general principle, um, I think there's a real interesting idea there of what does it mean to love someone who we do think is stuck in a pattern uh, of destructive behaviors. Mm. Um, and interestingly, I think the more I've been a pastor, the more I see my role as more like just a midwife to come alongside and, and, uh, and, and cheer people on and support them and hold their hand. Less so than someone standing over them saying, let me tell you all the things that you've done wrong. Right. It just doesn't usually end in in fruit and in in good things. Um, So, yeah, is it loving to let someone live in sin? I don't know. Um, But I know that it's not loving to make them feel like they don't belong or that they're somehow damaged or broken. That's not loving. Yeah. So
0: I'm going to start from that place. Oh, that's good. Oh, man. I think we could seriously talk for a long time. Uh, but we have things to do like, but not blogging. Um, so
1: <laughs> that, that probably won't happen
0: as we wrap up. Um, where can people find you online? Great.
1: Yeah. Okay. So Colby Martin online.com is kind of the hub for, um, where you can learn about the book. Um, my wife and I do a podcast called the Kate and Colby show. You can find nice. that on iTunes or at Kate and Colby.com. Uh, and that's our, that's our, podcast to talk about all things in life from a progressive uh, Christian perspective, marriage, parenting, church life. Uh, But yeah, you can, uh, I've got a author page on Facebook and Twitter, Instagram at Colby Martin. Uh, So I'm out there. I'm easy to find. The only other Colby Martin you might find out there is a realtor in Kansas who back in 2001 procured ColbyMartin.com, like right before
0: I wanted it. I'm so mad about that. So I have, I'm, my website is Michael-Hidalgo.com. Okay. Because michaelhidago.com is a photographer, dang it! <laughs> and it turns out this is one hundred percent true. It's a photographer who often takes photos, lingerie photos. Um, and so I was speaking at a rather large church this years ago, yeah. uh-huh. and they put my bio. No, they didn't. No, uh, they is, didn't. you see where this is going, yes. don't you? They uh, put my bio up the on dash. their homepage. <laughs> And they linked my website Uh, uh, to the lingerie photographer and in the words of my pastor friend who called me and said, we're really sorry. He said, at least they were tasteful pictures. Nice. (laughs) So again, that's michael-hidago.com and colbymartinonline.com. Okay. Really quick. (laughs) What's so
1: funny? Well, that's funny in and of itself, but ironically on Instagram, if you look for underscore Colby Martin, it is also a photographer who also takes um, slightly revealing photos of women. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So so we both have identically named humans out there with social media platforms of taking um, photos in that space.
0: So I don't know what that says. So as we talk about on the the podcast, if you're taking your next step, the next step is to put a dash between my name or online after Colby's name. Uh, I do invite you uh, to get Colby's book, Unclobber. Uh, It's a thoughtful piece. It's an accessible piece that really um, reflects a lot of wrestling with and being a student of and curious about uh, the text. And so, Colby, thank you for being on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure to be with you. It was a gift. Thanks, buddy. And for all of you listening, thank you for joining with us. And as always, until next time, much love and peace be with you.